0: This is the Stop the Bleed podcast, where host
1: Pat and Kelly will foster powerful discussion around the importance of Stop the Bleed. From awareness and training to education and life changing actions, you'll hear from survivors, first responders, neighbors, doctors, and people you pass on the
0: street every day. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Craig Goolsby. Dr. Goolsby was one of the small group of people that actually got the Stop the Bleed campaign started back in 2015. He's going to give us a little bit of the history of the campaign, tell us where things stand today, and talk to us about where the campaign is headed.
2: Joining us now is Dr. Craig Goolsby from Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Goolsby, can you tell our listeners about your role at Uniformed Health Services and a little bit more about the path that got you there?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, so I am an emergency medicine physician and I'm a professor of military and emergency medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda. I'm the vice chair for our department as well as the science director for the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. Uh, and my road to uh, working with uh, Stop the Bleed and Uniform Services University, I guess, has been uh, a path over the past many years. I was... Uh, previously an Air Force officer and had the opportunity to deploy uh, twice uh, for combat operations in Iraq, where I uh, worked as the medical director of a trauma center, uh, kind of a large hospital in uh, uh, at about 50 miles north of Baghdad in Iraq. And so I saw a lot of patients there that were really interesting to me because they had, um, you know, unfortunately terrible injuries, but they were able to survive these injuries, and make it to me in the hospital the emergency department alive because of simple interventions that were done right there when they were injured on the battlefield. So their uh, fellow soldiers were applying tourniquets or the soldier, him or herself, was able to provide uh, provide aid to themselves by using these simple devices. Uh, And so it was really impressive to me that they could survive these injuries, make it to us, and then have a chance for the medical team to be able to take care of them and uh, ultimately send them back home alive. and so when there was an opportunity to work as part of a federal interagency working group uh, to create the Stop the Bleed campaign, I was uh, excited to participate, uh, helping to develop the campaign and then and then being uh, present for the launch at the White House in 2015.
0: Uh, that's great, Dr. Goldsby. You know, I wonder, um, there's a lot that we uh, want to talk about in terms of uh, Stop the Bleed, where it is today. Um, what you've touched on in, in terms of your path, uh, I think, connects with... Uh, the idea of uh, transitioning some things that were learned on the battlefield uh, uh, to uh, back home uh, in a domestic environment. I, I wonder if you could uh, speak a little bit about uh, how, the, how it came about that uh, what was working over, over there uh, might be able to work here uh, at home.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it was an interesting process for the military as they went through it. Uh, when, when the military went to war shortly after the 9-11 attacks, uh, the teaching at that time for um, you know, the service members was basically don't use tourniquets. I mean, this was thought of by society and it really even in the military as being a potentially dangerous thing, right? You're gonna apply this device that stops bleeding going to a leg or an arm and that could lead to this horrible injury and you'd have to have the arm or leg amputated, uh, which for a tourniquet left on for a long period of time that could happen. So it's not like it's a it's a fake risk, it is something that could happen. But what the uh, what uh, a really uh, you know smart group of researchers and thoughtful physicians and and leaders in military medicine noticed was that they they took an effort to understand why people were dying on the battlefield and what was happening that could potentially be preventable. And through a series of studies, the military learned that, well, they, the reason they were dying is they were bleeding to death. And so there was a thought of, could there be things done that could stop that? And of course, we knew we had these devices. They're really uh, devices from ancient times, tourniquets that are effective for stopping that bleeding. And so a program of medicine that I had been in evolution of being developed over the past couple of decades called tactical combat casualty care really came to the forefront. And so it was widely implemented then throughout the military and people observed what happens to units that were taught in TC3 versus those units that weren't. And they found out that people did much better and there were many more troops that survived their injuries. And so it became a more widespread program. And then as a group of a uh, folks uh, back home started looking at, well, we have people in the U.S. that die from trauma. and We know that trauma is the leading cause of death for young people in the country, people between the ages of 1 and 45. It's always the top 10 leading cause of death for people overall. And so the thought was, well, we've learned these things on the battlefield. Are there things that might be beneficial for the civilian public as well? And so through a group, uh, uh, an effort that was led initially by a group called the Hartford Consensus in the wake of the Sandy Hook school shootings, uh, and then, as I mentioned, transitioned to a federal interagency group and a a large public-private effort, people said, well, we probably can take these same things that are working on the battlefield in terms of rapid bleeding control with tourniquets, with direct pressure, with hemostatic dressings, and use that for the benefit of the American public, and so that's really what the uh, the inception and kind of impetus for, uh, for launching the Stop the Bleed campaign was.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that struck me when I first learned about the campaign uh, several years ago, so this was after uh, the launch, um, when I was on active duty in the Army many years ago, uh, you know, we were... Uh, taught that the real estate of a soldier's body is uh, precious real estate because uh, any soldier can only carry so many things, either for space reasons or weight reasons. And uh, finding out that uh, in short order, uh, carrying a tourniquet uh, and, and uh, hemostatic bandage uh, was another thing uh, to have on them, uh, just told me that it was, uh, you know, through the efforts you're describing, uh, it quickly rose uh, in the priority scheme of uh, the, the many things that different people are are thinking soldiers should carry for various uh, for various reasons, and really kind of made the case that this stuff must uh, must work.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, uh, I've uh, you know I, I've never had to have the experience of of carrying a heavy pack through uh, through a um, you know a battlefield environment like so many of our soldiers have had to do, but I can certainly empathize with the idea that. You know, if you have 100 lightweight items that all weigh a pound each, you still have 100 pounds of stuff that you're carrying. So every single item that we're thinking about uh, putting into a pack is, is like you described, really important and precious for that uh, that burden that it's going to place on the soldier. But uh, in this case, I think that uh, troops have been happy to carry these devices because they have been so impactful uh, in terms of life, so lives saved. And, and the soldiers themselves were uh, were quickly uh, uh, able to realize that and benefit from it. Yeah, and I know...
0: Um... I want to talk a little bit about the um, Stop the Bleed educational consortium, but but before uh, we dive into that, I wonder if you could share with the listeners. So the campaign launches uh, as a result of a White House initiative built on these, you know, this history that you've described. What are your thoughts on how the campaign has uh, proceeded since inception, till where we are now?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of great things about it. I think there's a long way to go still. So we're in uh, in process in terms of, you know, taking something that's good and making it ten- continually better. Uh, and so what I've seen so far is that there have been a lot of interested parties that have stepped forward and raised their hand and said, hey, we we can help. We can help teach this. We can uh, find equipment. We can get the word out. We'll train our people. And so that's happened on a variety of levels from small local levels to bigger national levels. And so there have been um, a, a number of organizations and individuals really participating in the space. And it's, it's a distributed campaign that's not really owned by anyone, which makes it uh, neat because a lot of people can participate. And then also makes it a little tricky sometimes because it can be hard to coordinate all the different uh, elements that are involved. So the Department of Defense actually owns the logo, the trademark for Stop the Bleed. Uh, and then goes through a process of issuing out uh, licenses to folks who want to use it for educational or product needs. And there have been a lot of educational entities, in particular, that have picked up the Stopably logo and are using it on. Uh, either uh, large national programs like the one that the American College of Surgeons or the American Red Cross are doing, where they've got Stop the Bleed, um, you know, on their on their sort of product that's going out to many, many people. Uh, and it's done on more local levels with various, you know, universities or school systems and things as well that have been using it on uh, on education products that they've been using. So You know, the good news is, is there have been a lot of people reached. uh, The estimates are certainly more than a million people have been reached at this point with uh, direct education about it. We've seen it uh, particularly well adopted in some higher risk groups like police officers who may have an occupationally higher risk of, of being injured by violence or, you know, other workplace situation that would necessitate them needing to use these skills. So there's been a, a broad adoption by police and they've also been uh, often equipped with tourniquets and things that they wear on their belts or in their, their gear bags, so they're ready to respond. Uh, and so I think now the, now the pivot that I see is really trying to work on um, like CPR education, which is similar in a lot of ways and that it's a life-saving skill that needs to be done in a matter of minutes and often before professional help can arrive. That like that campaign, we want to try to get it, um, you know, institutionalized in a way where it's part of ongoing education. So is it part of an ongoing education program in schools, uh, like the Red Cross's first aid for severe trauma program that we've helped develop? Uh, is for high school students? Uh, is it, you know, and are there sustainable supplies and sustainable kind of requirements for certification that, like CPR, would allow us to propel this? That. Uh, that, uh, you know, large numbers of people will be continually trained going indefinitely into the future.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, Kelly and I were uh, talking earlier about uh, her training, and uh, she actually had a question that dovetails right into your question about certification or retraining. Kelly, I don't know if you want to share that now.
2: Yeah. I was going to jump in when you said continuous training. I've been trained, but that's been about two years ago now. I had thought about seeing what was happening and then, you know, the pandemic came, came about. I just am kind of wondering, you know, from, from your perspective, should I be thinking about taking a refresher course? Is there something that I should, this is this something I should be doing every year from a, how much I can retain to never having used it. You know, I, I did, like I said, two years ago, but I haven't had to really, I haven't had to use a tourniquet.
1: That's a great question. And, and and the short answer is we don't know the exact answer to your question. So there are different requirements for different training uh, organizations that are out there right now. Um, the first aid for severe trauma course that I've been mentioning, the certification for that would last two years. So Red Cross would say you get trained and then you have a certificate that's good for two years and then you retrain at that point. And that's a relatively standard time interval for a lot of other kinds of training that are out there that might be similar to what you'd see for a cpr course for example so is there something particularly magical about two years i can't say necessarily what we do know is that uh, the motor skills for people that have been trained On on performing a a task, do degrade over time. And so we've seen with studies of CPR, with studies of stop the bleed training, for example, that within a matter of months, you know, three months, six months later, uh, people's skills have substantially degraded, maybe from a a standpoint of, you know, near 100%, 90 to 100% success immediately after training to as low as 50% for some stop the bleed studies a few months after training, 30% for some CPR studies a few months after training. So, yeah, that is a bit alarming in terms of how do we keep currency. And I think it's probably a matter of, of, A, going for retraining would be great. If you have the ability to do it, I would say, sure, you know, go go retrain on these potential life-saving skills, CPR, stop the bleed, all those kinds of things. Um, if you're unable to do it, what my team uh, has been particularly looking at are, you are there adjuncts or refreshers or things in the moment at the point of need that might actually be very helpful? So, we've tested, for example, just in time instruction cards in multiple studies. We've tested web based training without necessarily practicing the hands on skills. And while those things aren't as good um, for the initial training, you know, if somebody goes and Goes into a class and practices hands on skills, they're very highly likely to be able to apply tourniquet successfully. If they do it with just web training or just a card only without the actual hands on practice, they're less likely to be able to apply tourniquet effectively, but they're much more likely to be able to apply it effectively than if they didn't do the card or the web based training at all, if they just didn't, you know, just did it sort of uh, trying to guess how to apply the tourniquet. So that encourages me to think that for somebody who has been trained, we may be able to be doing things in the future like having these cards and kits or having devices that are smarter that can sort of walk you through the steps. And then if you've been trained once, you might be able to replicate the skills when needed. So long answer to your question, but the short answer is now I think yes, retrain if at all possible. And then we're hoping that there are are an array of things that will help people to maximize their ability to perform the tasks successfully in the future.
2: And you kind of answered my question, because when you were talking, I was thinking, just-in-time kit, you you said it so fast, and I'm guessing that that is some type of easy step-by-step instruction or refresher that is put inside the kit. Am I correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. So we worked with, uh, for some of the studies we did, we worked with a medical illustrator who drew, you know, a series of very easy-to-understand, you know, essentially graphics, cartoon-type images um that said, you know, here are the steps, to pull, twist, and clip to a establish to a, put on a windless rod tourniquet, for example. Uh, and you know, we tried to make it look like something like when you when you board an airplane, you sit in an exit row and you have the little card there that you look at, well, that's a skill that you don't think about how to open an airplane door. But boy, if you need to know how to do it, you really got to know how to do it right then. And so having that card right there to say, like these are the steps, uh, you know the airline industry thinks that's an effective way to do it. And so we were curious about a similar idea, and we found that, We can take people and you give them a tourniquet with no practice at all, and they're somewhere in the five to 20% um, success rate of being able to apply a tourniquet. And you give them one of those cards and now it goes up to about half the time they can do it effectively. And then for people that have been trained previously and then you refresh them with the card, we're not sure yet what that will be, but I think it will be a lot better than somebody who doesn't ever get retrained. So we're hopeful that some of these little, just very simple adjuncts, you open up the kit, the card's right there. Uh, or there's some other mechanism that at the point of need says, here's how you do this life saving steps, similar to what we might see in an AED, which is a automated external defibrillator that people might be familiar with from the CPR uh, world.
2: That makes total sense. Thanks for elaborating on that.
1: You know, I,
0: I'm wondering as I'm listening to that, uh, Dr. Goolsby, um, I'm thinking about, a, 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 I was exposed to a couple of uh, situations where uh, gaming was uh, quite effective in uh, training people in whatever, un- unwittingly. Uh, there's a story about the Top Gun School, you know, the uh, Naval Aircraft School. 10 years ago or so, they started to see the students coming in with skill sets that were pretty close to what they were expected to leave with. Similarly, in NASCAR, the age of winning drivers has been getting lower over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And the uh, common reason for both of those is that you have kids who are learning to drive via gaming when they're 12 years old. And so they're they're not waiting until they can actually get a license and drive. And uh, the same thing with Top Gun. There was a particular uh, game. I can't remember the name of it. The leaving expense uh, aside, I, I wonder if some type of gaming component that really helps to get some people into sort of that virtual reality of what to do uh, might be a beneficial way to train people.
1: Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I mean, we don't, we haven't tested any gaming things in, in our studies, but it is something we've we've talked about and have been interested in. Because certainly, uh, you know, I have uh, I have young children, and you know, I've I've kind of made the comment a number of times, like if we could just get tourniquets into Fortnite, you know, every uh, every ten year old in America would know how to apply a tourniquet. Right. right. It's not just Fortnite. There are other games out there that are like that. But I mean, being able to sort of demonstrate that. I was struck watching the uh, the How to Train Your Dragon movies, you know, where the people are walking around with like wooden stumps on their legs from the amputations they've had from a dragon. And so it's like, wow, maybe they had to put a tourniquet on before they had the wooden stump on their leg. And so, you know, you think about like uh, either sort of mass media exposure or gaming kind of things like that, that would kind of reinforce this as a concept. Um, I think certainly that would be you know, we, again, we don't know specifically to be able to say, yes, this would get us to the 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 like of the likelihood of success that we want, or it could replace other types of training. But if you think about just sort of a general awareness, resilience building, kind of an augmentation to our, our typical way of teaching people in a classroom, I, I think probably any and all of these things could be helpful.
0: You know, another thing I've both wondered about and uh, observed in a couple of different ways is this, uh, so there is the training of the techniques. And uh, then, of course, in the moment, you need somebody who has the uh, self-confidence to act that you know, if lacking that, uh, understanding what to do probably isn't enough to get the job done if they're not willing to act at that moment. I, I imagine there's been discussion around, you mentioned resilience, uh, you know, empowerment, helping people understand that they can uh, be successful in helping someone uh, and how to think about how to communicate that so people are drawn to the training versus uh, maybe being disinterested because of uh, some of the risks that they perceive might be involved with it.
1: Yeah, well, i I think that you're right. I think the motivation to act and sort of the willingness is a big piece of it. When I I lead a group called the Stop to Bleed Education Consortium, and we've put together members from, uh, well, really, uh, all around the world now at this point. And so there's something like 40 members or so that participate. Uh, We just had a call earlier uh, earlier today, actually. So we have a quarterly uh, meeting where we. get together and chat, you know, about kind of best education practices or things related to Stop the Bleed that we could help kind of work on from a scientific standpoint primarily, but, you know, putting out either uh, either evidence or kind of policy recommendations, those types of things. And um, our group put together a guideline paper that was published um, a couple of years ago. And so we established really sort of minimum contents for Stop the Bleed training programs. And there were really three key points. One was developing a motivation to act, having people be able to differentiate life-threatening from non-life-threatening bleeding. And then learning how to apply pressure to stop bleeding and the two types of pressure, specifically being an indirect pressure with a tourniquet and then a direct pressure just with your hands pushing on a wound, basically. And that's really, to me, what Stop the Bleed training is, is those three things. It's motivation, differentiation of bleeding, and applying pressure. And if you can accomplish that successfully in training, that's really what the course is. And so I think the first first thing is that the motivation is a bit of a paradigm shift, particularly not for young people so much who may not have learned the other lessons, but for older uh, older generations of people who have been taught with trauma patients, don't touch them. You know, the key is just call 911 and an ambulance will come and we don't want you to touch the, touch the patient. And now we're saying something very different that no, actually, we're really hoping you will touch the patient and that what you do matters and could save somebody's life before the ambulance gets there. We still want you to call 911, still want an ambulance to come, but in those five or 10 minutes that an ambulance may not, uh, not be there for a life-threatening injury. This could be the difference between life and death or if not life and death, you know, a prolonged hospital stay versus a shorter hospital stay or needing a blood transfusion or not or saving, you know, a variety of different things. So that's kind of our, uh, our hope is that that motivation is a really key piece of this whole puzzle.
0: Yeah, one of the things that has struck me uh, in terms of younger people—by younger people, I'm referring to uh, high schoolers. You know, we have a lens into it through uh, the annual Stop the Bleed scholarship program, where students have to address a Stop the Bleed-related question either with an essay or a video. It's been very consistent that of the applications received—you know, this is a program three years uh, running at this point, year after year—that what the students are communicating more than any other message is that they do want to be empowered to act. They're they're interested in that. And I juxtaposition that against, you know, what they're uh, instructed in lockdown drills and, and schools, which correlates to why they're maybe more interested in stop the bleed because they understand at least one of the risks where that where this training might be uh, necessary. But this sense of empowerment, and we want to know what to do. I don't want to watch my friend die because I didn't know what, what to do. I think they've done a pretty good job in making the case to the scholarship committee about, you know, why Stop the Lead is important. You know, in terms of what you were breaking down before the motivation piece, has there been uh, thinking around what the messaging should be so that to create that motivation for people to want to become Stop the Lead trained?
1: Well, I guess I'd answer your question by saying that we have... Um in sort of all of our series of studies where we've taken the lay public and asked them, you know, their kind of subjective thoughts on using uh, tourniquets or being willing to respond to a bleeding emergency and then done some brief intervention for them, whether it's a, uh, you know, teaching them in sort of a classroom how to use a tourniquet or giving them a just in time card or exposing them to a website or, you know, some combination of those things. We generally always ask before and after about those sort of motivation and willingness questions. And we've seen consistently in every study, a dramatic increase from whatever exposure, even if it's a five minute brief exposure uh, and how to do things that people um, tends to always increase their willingness to do it. So I think probably a big part of motivation is just a, uh, you know, a, a confidence in that I'm not totally ignorant about this anymore. Somebody has shown me how to do it or told me the right way. And now that I know that, I would be much more willing and, and able to respond. And there, uh, there, there is a body of literature out there on uh, intent to aid, uh, I2A type of topics, and I'm not uh, as familiar with that. So I can't you know, say specifically, is there a direct type of message that we would... Uh, We would use to motivate people uh, to act, but I think in general being able to let them know that this is something that they are capable of doing, that a member of the public who has been shown what to do can do these steps and what they do does matter and it can be life-saving and and driving home the message that often I think when people think about sort of first aid education, whether it's bleeding control or, or somebody who's choking, the image that pops in your mind is of a total stranger, right? I'm going to see this total stranger at a restaurant and I'm going to run over and save their life from choking. But it's very often your family member, you know, the person who's bleeding or injured is your, your dad or your wife or your child or, you know, a good friend or a coworker or somebody that you would, if you were asked, hey, would you be willing to do bleeding control on your child? I would imagine the answer would be, you know, basically 100% everybody would say that. If you just say, would you be willing to do bleeding control in general? People are like, well, I don't know. It's somebody off the street. I I don't, you know, it's a little bit of a different take. Uh, And so I think we, you know, we have tried to stress with, you know, our various learners that, again... Trauma is an every one, every day occurrence, and as a leading cause of death for everyone in the country, you just don't know when you may be faced with the circumstance, and it may very well be that it's someone in your own your own family. And so, I think kind of driving that message home is helpful as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's a little subtle because you, uh, if people are taught to care about this solely because they can save a family member sort of don't worry about everybody else. That certainly is motivating. I can't imagine any parent that would say, I, I, I would not want to be able to save my child from uh, you know a bleeding event or really any, anything else. Yet on the other hand, uh, we want people to uh, act in the moment, really regardless of who that person is who needs help. So that to me seems uh, tricky in terms of uh, messaging.
1: Yeah, absolutely and i hope i didn't imply that this is only to save your uh, save your own family members because we of course are expecting them to uh, expecting and hoping that they would uh you know perform these on anybody who's in need and so it so things that we do specifically to be reassuring uh, in that and uh, you know i've seen in, in various um uh, various education programs and that whenever i'm involved in one of the education programs we try to stress is that you're your risk in helping somebody is low, because that's generally the fear, right? Is that people say, well, I don't know this person, you know, what if they have HIV or, or or, am I gonna get sued because I went to help them and then I did something wrong and they're gonna sue me for it. And I would say those are a couple of the most common types of concerns that come up from people. And so, you know, in, in general, a teaching of, if you have gloves, wear them. Certainly we want people to, to take, you know, barrier precautions where they have them. But we also tell them that an absence of gloves is not necessarily and should not necessarily be an absence of action because we do know the risk of somebody with intact skin uh, coming into contact with blood, the risk of, um, of acquiring HIV in that circumstance or hepatitis or some of the other communicable diseases we'd be worried about is very, very low. I mean, really exceptionally low, that risk. It's different if you have somebody with a high viral load and somebody has an open cut on their hand. I mean, there are nuances to that instruction, but it's a relatively low risk. And then we certainly would encourage people to wash their hands after and follow up with their, with their healthcare professional after they have an exposure. Um, but reassuring people that you know your risk of, of, of coming down with one of the diseases is very low. Your risk of being sued in general is also low. Of course, there are different laws on the books for all 50 states, but in general, most states have some type of good Samaritan protections that allow people that if they're really trying to do something to help, generally gives them some protection at that standpoint. So those couple of common things that people are worried about for the stranger on the street in general are low. And it, it seems like from our experience, and we've all seen the images from the Boston Marathon bombing or, you know, from 9-11 or these other things that happen, people want to help and they usually want to help their fellow human being in that circumstance. And so there may be some people who are really worried and deterred by that, but we're going to generally see a lot of people who are going to try to help uh, folks when they need it.
0: You know, I'm wondering, uh, you've been there uh, actually before the beginning. Uh, before we wrap up here, as, as you look ahead uh, over the next couple of years, how do you foresee the campaign evolving? What do you think the campaign's aspirations should be uh, looking ahead?
1: I think one of the next big steps is really um, trying to make this kind of institutionally stable where it's a standard part of education. Because I think that getting you know, more people exposed, more people building a common knowledge around this. You know, if you use the term CPR, most of the public, I think, if you told them that term would know basically what that means, you know, and they would have an understanding of this is somebody who's heart has stop beating. And I'm doing these things like pushing on their chest to try to get their their heart to start uh, again. And so I think we'd like to reach a similar state around uh, injury education because it is such an important um. Uh, a uh, problem, and, and the things that people can do in those minutes before an ambulance arrives that would uh, would help somebody survive a life threatening injury. And one of those things, that's the most you know, really among the most important things they could do, is this control of external bleeding by direct pressure or or application of a tourniquet. So, um, I think you know this uh, this program that I've been involved in developing uh, with uh, in, in collaboration with the Red Cross, this first aid for severe trauma program, was actually a federal government funded program. So uh, I was able to, uh, I was the awardee of a grant uh, from the Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology Directorate to develop a trauma training program for teenagers, specifically with the idea that if we could reach the younger people who haven't necessarily learned some of the lessons that, you know, some of us older folks have heard, like don't ever use a tourniquet, a young person hasn't necessarily heard that. Whereas a lot of us Uh, that are a little older have maybe heard that in a number of different settings. So we don't have to reverse sort of a lesson that somebody's already heard before, we can just provide new and effective information to the young people. Uh, And so as we built this uh, program, we specifically designed it for about the ninth or 10th age group, you know, somewhere around a 15 year old. Uh, And we worked with high school teachers and we worked with high school students and focus groups and a variety of clinical experts and public health people and education people to say, can we get a program that really is targeted at this group and that would be effective in in providing these stop the bleed lessons. We also talk about a few other things like communication on the scene and with a 911 dispatcher and scene safety, a couple of very practical things that young people or anybody taking the course, because adults certainly could take this course as well, uh, could do. And so I... What I would see is a trajectory. Is if if a, if a program like that that can now reach high school students, which is offered to them at no cost, as a stipulation of the grant, if they could, if they can do that and adopt that in a way that we see like CPR in schools, which reaches something like two million kids a year, we really have a chance over the next several years to reach a significant number of people and raise resilience and awareness of injury, you know, thinking about equipping and have people that are kind of in that mindset. So uh, so that's, I guess, the trajectory that I would be sort of hopeful to see. And then I think the other, that's really the education standpoint. The the other side is the equipment standpoint. And so developing tools that can facilitate the responders' uh, effectiveness at the point of injury and then making those, those tools widespreadly available in the way that AEDs are now available in public spaces and the way that people have their own personal first aid kits at home. I think that's kind of the other, the other side of the coin is making sure the materials are ready for people.
2: I want to thank Dr. Goolsby once again for his time. I am super excited for the future of the campaign and the growing number of people that will soon be joining the Stop the Bleed campaign.
0: You know, it's funny, Kelly, he mentioned high schoolers and school environments and our spotlight today is actually about the stop the bleed coalition they're one of the major funders of the stop the bleed scholarship program which has been running for several years now and what we've seen is tremendous interest at the high school level for the scholarship program and part of that of course is uh, high school kids are always interested in scholarships but stop the bleed also resonates with them and so the scholarship program is one where the students uh, receive a monetary award and the schools that they go to receive Stop the Bleed kits. So the program runs annually. Applications open typically in February. They close out about six weeks later. And the kids who win the scholarships are announced on National Stop the Bleed Day.
2: Pat, how can people find out more information about the scholarship program?
0: So they can go to the National Stop the Bleed Day site, NationalStopTheBleedDay.org, and their scholarship information available. If the application period is open, they can apply if they're interested. If not, they can sign up to be notified when the application period does open.
2: Great. And since we're sending folks to other places, just a reminder, everyone, to please subscribe to the Stop the Bleed podcast. You can do so in whatever you're listening to right now, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And please just take a minute and share the podcast with someone, you know, because together we can save more lives.
1: To learn more about the Stop the Bleed campaign, Stop the Bleed grants and scholarships, and how you or your organization can get involved, visit stopthebleedproject.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Stop the Bleed for campaign updates.